Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. So we've been on the beginning of a journey for this rituals class, and it is a course that is taking us down the road of what does it mean to explore rituals in our everyday lives. Like I've said at the beginning of each of the previous classes, the whole theory here is that we're taking the routine, we're taking habits from every day, and we're elevating them to the level of ritual. And there are lots of pieces of ritual um, that social scientists have taken and have turned into principles to help give boundaries to the concepts of ritual so that we're not just all using the word ritual, but using it to mean different things. You know, we can share a definition of ritual in this way in case you are new-ish to this um, to this uh class and gathering. Here is the slideshow that we use and all the information that we um, share lives in it. And um, we uh, talked about these shared principles and the idea of um, rituals existing in this universe of magical je ne sais quoi. They have this quality to them that just, they just work and they have to be done intentionally. They can't be done mindlessly. And they have to have a purpose that's beyond the practical, even if they also achieve something practical. They have to evolve over time. They're not stagnant. And I add to these principles some Jewish principles as well, which are that the rituals have to look and feel authentic to the tradition. They have to have aspects to them that are authentic to the Jewish tradition and that rituals get stronger through repetition. The longer they're around, the stronger a ritual gets. The, the thicker it gets, the more rooted it gets, the the stronger it gets for the person who's experiencing it, the stronger it gets for the per- for the next person who's going to inherit it as what will feel like a new tradition, but it's a newer, older, more authentic tradition. So it gains sort of an edge to it um, the longer it is around. Um, it's sort of aged, has like an aged flavor to it. Um, and so those are all very important. Last time around, we began to explore some of these ideas in Casper Terkel's, um kind of treatise, his book on uh, the power of rituals. We started to explore his ideas around the idea, um, around the, the, the exploration of ritual in the world of the secular. So he takes these concepts that, that belong in the world of the religious and he applies them to sexual to secular lifestyles and he says these things that only exist for people who are religious you even if you aren't in tune with the divine even if you don't have a relationship with the divine you can use these tools and use them in everyday life. So we talked about Lectio Divina and this idea of pardes and how we can take books and delve deeply into reading, right? Careful reading that can be done in a sacred way 
even with a text that isn't considered sacred uh, by every person. Because what makes a sacred text sacred? Somebody calling it sacred. So when somebody calls it sacred, it's a sacred text. And then we study it as a sacred text should be studied. And a sacred text has many different ways of being studied. Some ways might be in Chavruta or Lectio Divina or Pardes or other sorts of like careful reading techniques. So those are all things that we um, started to explore. I also wanted to get this week into an idea that I started to mention, but we got bogged down in other conversations last time, which is how Casper explores a tech Sabbath. So for, for him, so he opts into the idea of a tech Sabbath. He is not Jewish, grew up um, a young queer man in England, I believe Dutch family. Um, and he, um, didn't grow up with any sort of religious tradition that observes any kind of a Sabbath, as you may or may not be aware. Jews are not the only tradition that observes a weekly Sabbath on which people refrain from certain types of observances. Seventh-day Adventists, even Mormons, have different types of relationships with sort of a Sabbath weekly observance. But he was intrigued by this idea of a turning off of the very things that he felt were leeching his sustaining energies from his life. And he decided to enter into a tech Sabbath every week. And he specifically calls it a tech Sabbath in his book, like a tech Shabbat. He doesn't call it a Shabbat in his book. And I want to get back to that in just in just a moment. He says it's 25 hours, not 24. Now, this is the first very Jewish thing he says. Why is that so Jewish? What's so Jewish about saying it's 25 hours? You're always supposed to add to a mitzvah? Right. And how do we add to the mitzvah of Shabbat each week? Any more time? Right. How much more time do we add? It's the length of Shabbat, but how much do we add? Two hours? No. We, we add 18 minutes before Shabbat and 42 after, getting to 25 hours. So the 18 minutes is the little fence we give ourselves around the opening and 42 after, lest we transgress this Sabbath of ours, we're even building a buffer around it. So he doesn't just observe this Sabbath of 24 hours. He says, no, I'm going to observe even the fence around the Sabbath, giving myself not just a day, but a buffer around the day so I don't cut it short for myself. And he begins it with a ritual too, because he's a ritual guy. So he doesn't just jump in and say, well, that's it. I'm shutting my laptop. I'm, I'm done. He starts it by lighting candles. And it's not just a matter of appropriation. He does it his own way. He lights candles. He doesn't say, well, I light two candles. Shamor is a No, he lights candles. And then he goes and he sits and he meditates for a while. He goes and does something with his brain other than being on screens. And the question is, what does it do for him? He absolutely intentionally adopted these things from the Jewish Sabbath. 
is directly adapted from the Jewish Sabbath. What it does for him is it it sets boundaries for him. It sets it's it's, it's a ritual that achieves for him a, a sense of boundary, and it it is a something beyond the practical, right? It, it has to be otherwise it's not ritual. Remember that principle is not his. That principle is Ozank's principle. But I think he would say that that's true, too. It doesn't make sense. If it's just practical, then it's not a ritual. It's just something he's doing to make his life better. But I don't think he'd say he's just doing it to make his life better. I think he's saying, I adopt this ritual, and it's not just a practical thing. Because if it were a practical thing, he'd say, I shut my phone off for five hours. Or, you know, I leave my phone unsilent for 25 hours or something like that. But no, he shuts it off for this full 25 hours. And it's a ritual of those 25 hours. And he starts it with a candle and then he goes and meditates and he creates this whole sense of I'm freeing myself of these devices and I'm setting a boundary and I can't use them. And also other people can't reach me through them. And he has opted into this. They're not boundaries that other people set on him. He doesn't even feel bound by God to be observing them because this is not a, a religious observance for him. It's a ritual. So when he observes the tech Sabbath, he's observing it out of a sense of obligation to who or what. Himself. Sure. Himself. Who else could it be? If it wasn't just himself, even thinking Karen with a sort of psych hat on, who else, who else could it be? If it's not just himself, who is it? It could be his family, right? Like, it's a way of reframing, like, I'm not doing this, so now it opens me up to more time for other things such as spending time with his family. I didn't know if he had a family and was doing it with, or he was just, you know what I mean? So I didn't know, but I hear you. Absolutely. He doesn't say so. He, it seems he's doing this alone. Mm. It does seem he, he, he certainly started alone. He's been doing it 14 years. Well, to something beyond himself. No. I don't know. I mean, I don't really have, this is not, this is not exactly Socratic, right? I'm not seeking particular answers. I am some, at some points I am, but it's not exactly Socratic. Like I, I don't know, maybe it is to the people in his life or the energy he wants to bring to the world. I do think that there's an element of that in what he's doing. I, I think he believes that bringing ritual betterment to the world is, is just good. I think it is better to himself. I think, I think there's something to, I think there's something somewhat Kantian, just to dip into philosophy for a second, for for the atheist or agnostic person who also observes ritual practices, I begin to get a sense through these social sciences that there is a belief that if I create a better version of myself through ritual practices, that I am contributing to a good with a capital G in the world, that there is something happening through my doing something better for myself too. Um, And the reason that I observe that is that 
it seems like it's something beyond the ego uh, that is driving this ritual desire. And there also is a craving of proselytization as well, which is so interesting because it's a non-religious proselytization. There's a, a drive to bring other people into ritual practices as well with this sort of wave of other people saying, I do rituals. Do you want to do rituals too? I'm not religious, but I do rituals. Do you want to do rituals too? And therefore it, it speaks to me from this place of, uh, well, they must believe that there's something good with a capital G, not God, but good, you know? And so I, I don't think that we should limit ourselves to saying that ritual is inherently tied to how we're feeling about God on any given day. And I that is that's the possibly the most radical thing that I have to offer you as Rabbi and Cantor in this class. Okay? I don't think that we need to tie doing good ritual for ourselves or for others to our relationship with God, whether it's very good or very non-existent on any given day. Ritual is ritual. And for some reason, Jews do this very good job of saying that ritual is mitzvah and mitzvah is ritual and ritual is mitzvah and mitzvah is ritual and some mitzvahs are ritualistic and ritual is mitzvah. But that's not, ritual is its own thing. It's its whole own category of life. And it's extraordinarily powerful, like worthy of its own world and its own study. And there's so much that we do that's ritual that isn't mitzvah at all. And there also is that which is ritual, which comes from the world of mitzvah, that even those who are not Jewish can observe. There are plenty of people in the world who sort of shut off their stuff for a tech Sabbath, not just people who write about it. Um, any thoughts on that before I begin to challenge us to start the crafting on our own? Oh, Denise says, I feel like... In some settings, the rituals become like a spiritual vocabulary. That's beautiful. I like that a lot. Joanna, yeah. Um, so just to share a little bit, when my father passed away, um, I think there might be something around this around Shiva, but I don't think this is almost a non-ritual ritual, but I don't think it really fully extends for the full year in terms of wearing jewelry. And just to give a little context to that, I'm the daughter of a South American mother who when because people, she was already living in the United States, you know, would not allow her to pierce her newborn daughter's ears, you know, day one, waited until I was six months old. And from the time I was six months old until my father passed away, it would be a very rare day that I did not wear at least a pair of earrings. And then as I grew into adulthood, you know, depending on the outfit, a necklace, a bracelet, whatever, and especially on Shabbat also. And my father passed away and like subconsciously, like I didn't even think about it at the time during the week of Shiva, I did not wear any jewelry. And then you know, it continued through Shloshim. And at some point in Shloshim, I became cognizant of that and made the choice that that would be a sign of mourning for me for my entire year, that I would not wear any jewelry for an entire year. And, and I agree with you. This was nothing to do with God. I had no concept that 
this was a mitzvah or this is how I should should mourn in the Jewish way or this is what God wanted. It was just something that became very personal to me. Um, and I actually think I haven't spoken about it at all. Like I didn't point out to anyone I wasn't wearing jewelry, but it was just something inward to me that was a marker for me, an ever-present marker that life was different now, that I was in mourning because never again would I get to spend time in this life with my dad. There's so many elements of ritual in there, Joanna, um, that we've been talking about. One of them is just the organic nature of the genesis of what you did. You didn't wear jewelry, and then you kept not wearing jewelry, and then it sort of evolved and kept going and growing in importance to you. Um, and you're right. It, it it was its own beast. It was its own thing to you, and its importance lived in you. You named its importance. It had this je ne sais quoi factor to it, right? It had all the markers of being its own ritual to you. And that's what matters. It doesn't have to live in the script of our tradition to be as important or as effective as the very things that our tradition has scripted for us. Anyone else want to share on this thought before we go talking about crafting ritual? Yeah, Bonnie. Well, uh, Larry had the ritual of the first thing every morning was to go out and get the newspaper and regaling me with all of the wonderful haha things that were happening in the world. And, um, and the girl said to me, well, you don't have to keep getting the newspaper, but I needed to do that. And so I've sort of adapted that ritual. And I don't read the whole newspaper, but I, I read the headlines. I look through it all, and I, I share it with him at the time. That's Torah. You know, it's, it, it, it's basically Torah. It's... And it's no less important just because it's a newspaper. And um, I love that it's sort of an inherited ritual, too. You know, I know people who still keep, like, jackets that smell like pipe tobacco, even though they don't smoke because they love that smell and they're nostalgic for it. And they're just things, rituals that belong to other people. Once they become evident that they were rituals, particularly when they're gone then they can become even more important to us. We don't want those rituals to disappear with them. Maybe that even elevates the ritual more. Um, mm. I want to talk about crafting ritual, and I want to talk about at least two categories of crafting um, ritual, at least in the Jewish realm. So... One is innovation and one's invention. So innovation is a way of talking about enhancing existing mitzvahs or existing rituals or existing moments. Uh, Ritual already exists. And you're going to take that moment and you're going to elevate it even 
further by creating some element that adds to it, you know, that, that, that gives more flavor to it, that makes it more your own, that ritualizes it either in a more modern or feminized way or in, uh, in a way that fits your family right or fits you right, that kind of a thing. That's innovation and enha- enhancement. Invention is where a ritual didn't exist and where you take the elements of the Jewish tradition in this case and you craft a ritual that works for you and works in that moment. I want to offer you an example of each of those things and then I want to start talking about them in a, in a little bit bigger um, list. Before I talk about that, Karen, did you have a question or an idea? No? Okay. Later. Okay. All right. So I first want to offer you an example of innovation, this idea of adapting an existing ritual and doing something that's an enhancement. So I want to talk about Simchat Bat. In a few minutes, what we're going to do after we talk about this difference between adaptation, you know, innovation versus invention, I want us to talk about the whole Jewish life cycle and what we do and don't mark in the Jewish life cycle. Because understanding what does exist and what doesn't yet exist is part of our grappling with ritual innovation versus invention. One of the things to understand best is Simchat Bat and Bris, this nexus and how it came to be. So bris has existed since the Torah existed. The idea of circumcision that takes place on the eighth day exists in Genesis in the first, um, uh, oh, that's very, that's very cute. Let's go to um, and um, so Simchabat versus versus bris is this idea that the bris has that's always existed as a as a Torah um, based ritual. Um, it's always been a more effective ritual for so many reasons than Simchabat, and I don't say that because like because it happens to men in men's bodies. No. Let me explain why it's a more effective ritual. Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, who taught my life cycles class at the Jewish Theological Seminary, he would say that, number one, it's a more effective ritual because it involves blood. And any ritual that involves blood in any which way, it just wins. I know that that sounds crazy and terrible, but like, how can you beat that, right? And... There's tons of controversy about circumcision, and it's very powerful. You really cannot beat the power that exists in a ritual that involves blood, in a ceremony that involves blood. Number two, it involves like intimacy with the body. Number three, it is there in black and white in our sacred, inherited, canonized, unquestionable text, right? 
And number four, it sort of has like a discrete set of liturgy and here's when you do it and here's to whom you do it. And there's the Kiseishel Eliyahu element of it, right? And the Kvaterin, the people who carry them in. And then there's like the Sondak, there's the person who gets on or beholden the baby. It's discreet. It's short. There's a Sudat Mitzvah you eat afterwards. It's got all the great things to it, right? It's kind of like perfectly planned out, except for the mom who is eight days postpartum and like absolutely a wreck, I say from experience. So um, it it really is like the perfectly crafted already existing thing. And then you get to, well, what do I do if I have a baby who does not have a circumcisable body part, right? Um, legally, right? We do not circumcise body parts that are not tiny penises, okay? That That is not something that we do in our tradition. That is not permissible. And uh, when circumcision is done to girls, it is done to remove pleasure. And there is no comparison. And there is no comparison in that debate, right? So that is a non-starter. We don't talk about the difference between those who uh, protest against Jewish circumcision, which is a matter of removing a non-nerve-based uh, foreskin versus a um versus uh the removal of the clitoral region uh, which is a a matter of of a ritualized removal of um what would be a lifetime of sexual pleasure experiences for for a female member of a of a tribe typically um of certain african countries so um Anyway, the, my soapbox, it's, it's not comparable. So we don't, yes, theoretically that could exist. No, it does not exist in our tradition or in most traditions. So what do we do? Well, there's one element that the two things share in common. And already that ritual innovation existed um, when somebody said, well, we do give a name, Vikari Shemobi Israel. We call his name among Israel does exist in one of the brachot in the Mishaberach that we say for the boy at a bris. So we can declare the name of the girl to the community too. Great. But it's kind of like a, it has the funeral, it has the funeral problem, which is it's got such limited liturgy, right? A funeral, not the burial part of a funeral, but the funeral itself, the only liturgy in a funeral is a male, and that's it. There's the eulogy and the and the and the el male rachamim, and then there's the burial and 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 el male and kaddish. It's like too lean. Where we're missing liturgy for a for a girl's naming. Like one thing is just you can't just say that. Like where, when, and then how old, right? Do you also do it at eight days? And then you have the feminist question, which is, well, do you do it at the same time as boys? Or do you, Dafka, not do it at the same time as boys? Girls are very different than boys. Well, why should it be based upon, you know, the, the why should everything have the standard of, of, the, of sort of the male basis? Oh, but like, shouldn't it be equitable, equal? So is it kind of a debate, first and second wave feminism on that front? Okay, so eventually we come up with, what's the Jewish way? Lots of answers to this question. So many different ways in which we can do baby namings. What different ways have you seen baby namings done for girls? You must have seen so many different ways that it's been done. Just name that. What are different ways girls get named? Just jump in. You can unmute yourselves. 
So first of all, what's really interesting, not that it was a baby naming, but in the Sephardic tradition, there has been a Zevet Habat for centuries, like a ceremony to celebrate the arrival of a girl, which is quite fascinating that that developed, you know, at least they were doing something to acknowledge this new female life in the world where nothing existed in Ashkenaz. Um, And I've seen all kinds of things. I've seen... Um, you know, I think the counterpoint to blood in a ritual, like what makes a ritual exciting mm-hmm. if there's water in the ritual. So I've seen um, lots of simchat bats that involve water in some way. Um, I've seen people do all sorts of creative liturgies, drawing from psalms, drawing from... Um, uh, other pieces of the tradition and from non-Jewish tradition that, you know, people feel spoke to the moment. Um, and the other thing that's quite beautiful is, you know, talking about the meaning of the name, who they were named for, the qualities of the person. Um, so I think all that has been amazing. And as I'm talking, I just wanted to share like sort of a very anecdotal observation that came to me and see if there's like agreement that this is what happened. But I remember like attending brises of cousins or, you know, friends, children or whoever as a young kid. And it was like sort of very perfunctory. Like there is a prescribed liturgy for a bris. It's short, you know, do the liturgy announce the name if anything was said about the name it was just a quick mention you know little joe goldberg is named for his grandfather joseph goldberg and on we go and there's been all this innovation happening in a simchat bat that has sort of retroactively also seeped its way into a brit milah where people will now bring creative readings to a brit milah or other texts and certainly talk more about the name you know go into a fuller explanation of um who the person was named for so i really think that that to me if i'm right about that observation that's very fascinating how new ritual impacted on existing ritual we did when perry netter announced that we were going to have a Shabbat service where girls You froze, Karen. But I wanted to know what happened at that Shabbat service. So if you come back, you can fill it in. Something like that? Um, You froze, Karen. Can you you tell that story one more time, what happened? Yes. Thank you. (laughs) It was when... uh, uh, Perry Netter, Rabbi Netter said, we're going to do this Saturday, we're going to baby name girls. And so a bunch of mothers and fathers with baby girls came. And I remember Michael holding Molly. Uh, she must have been, I guess, then within the first year, maybe year and a half. And uh, she got her Hebrew name. Hmm. But it was like just we're doing it, you know what I mean? We're just doing it, and it's just happening there, and it's in a group, and yeah. Sherry, what were you thinking? Um, well, I know that I was told that when I was named, that my dad, I think, and my grandfather went without me. I think they just went to the synagogue All right. and on tour reading, and I was given a name, and I wasn't even there. Um, but I know by the time I. Rebecca, my daughter's uh, naming, we did it on Shabbat, and we 
we did it and we went ahead and just did it three weeks because we could have all the grandparents there <laughs> and um and we named her during the tour reading and we did told about it and my niece who was just a couple of years later at a different synagogue they did it like on a sunday morning and they did water with the feet or something like that um which was different than the way we've seen it done here so i i've seen it many different ways and i know some Betty recently who did a naming and it was definitely on the eighth day so for a girl so in all different ways there are so many different ways it can be done denise also mentioned monday thursday shabbat during the tour reading having a baby names there's so many different things that can be done and so many different elements that can be added to the ceremony innovated adapted to this ceremony i'll share that some of you might remember that when our daughter was born uh, and named that we commissioned a piece of art with her name on it mm-hmm. and that we actually brought in an ink pad and everybody who was present stamped their fingers on the ink pad and then they were able to become the leaves on the tree because her name is Ella Ma'ayan, uh, which means tree fountain. She thinks that's very funny. Um, but uh, Ella is a, a terebinth tree. And so uh, this was a tree and she has her little footprints on top. And then her name was added afterwards. We waited until that eighth day to actually... Um, share the name and that was a powerful thing for for us was waiting those full eight days just as we would have had she been a a boy we called her baby burrito for eight days and it was a lot of fun uh, to keep that name a secret um, among the family and that was our innovation so all of these are different ways in which you can take an existing ritual and I think that it's I wanted to go with something that was familiar to many people to take something that is an an innovation um, in, in an adaptation of something that's an existing ritual and change something about it I want to now give an example of a ritual um, that can be invented whole cloth. Um, and this one is a, this one's a really, um, fresh one. Um, and I didn't ask, uh, permission to share it. It's just out there in the public and I think so worthy of, um, of being, shared so I'm going to share it but it's from our own congregant so I'm going to share um, some of you might know Dr. Sarah Benor Sarah is a professor at Hebrew Union College um, she's also recently um, uh appointed to an academic a new academic position i'll look up what that is and then i can add it to the podcast at huc um she's an amazing professor and uh, academic on in the field of jewish languages and um, how language uh, evolves in america among jewish communities and she was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and was about to undergo treatment and she wanted to invent a ritual and she teaches about ritual and ritual invention to both Jews and non-Jews or she also teaches to USC students um, so she she uh, has, is used to teaching them and she wrote this beautiful article for Tablet about creating this um, this 
ritual. Um, and so she describes in this article um, how she worked with her friend, Rabbi Sean Fieldsmeyer, who many of you know, and how she created this ritual that she called her pre-chemo upshurn. So it was inspired by the Hasidic upshurnish, which is the the haircut, but it's not an adaptation of a ritual. It's just, it's just inspired by the idea of an upshurn. So she takes this idea of an upshurn and, um, she, she started with refreshments and upbeat music and then guests sat in a circle of chairs. She explained, um, why she decided to cut her hair. They decided to study some texts about hair covering and hair cutting and then as they were sitting around, she tied off her hair in different ways and her daughter came and there was a ritual haircut that began. And this is a picture of um, her daughter with her. And they put her hair into 12 in, um, ponytails that were each at least eight inches long because it's the minimum for a donation. And they sang Oziva Zimratia and Mina Metsar and they ended with a brief of Dala ceremony because... It separates the dark from the light. And she said, May this Havdala ceremony bode well for my senses remaining intact, and may I remember that any effects on my body are likely only temporary. And she ends the article by saying that so much is out of your control when you're undergoing treatment like this, and she wanted to create a ritual that was within her control. I wanted to share these different paradigms because I wanted to encourage you to begin thinking about what ritual you would like to create this year going into Tishrei, going into 5782. I think you've now heard enough from me about the ways in which everyday people have created rituals, created rituals whole cloth, and also just adapted and added to simple rituals. Um, rituals, as I told you in the very beginning, can be as simple as placing a rock on the table when you start studying and taking it off when you're done studying. That's as simple as a ritual can be. They can be as elaborate as the ceremony that I just described, the Dr. Benor created for herself as a preoperative treatment. And rituals have power, and we have the power to create them. We have the authority to create them. And rituals do something, they actually do have power, they actually do impact, they help us to do better. Um, and they help our lives get better. The impact on the people around us as well. There is a why to doing ritually well. So I wondered if there was anybody who was interested in either sharing thoughts or questions or ideas about the rituals that they might consider exploring this Elul going into Tishrei. Yeah, Joanna. Sorry, technical difficulties. Okay. So, um, what I've been thinking about is for a couple of years, 
is that um, ceremony that, again, started more predominantly in Sephardic families, and now a lot of Ashkenazic families do also. There are a few variations where on Rosh Hashanah evening, before you eat the meal, you have a mini Seder of sorts. And like we all know about the apples and honey and pomegranates, but there's like a whole variety of foods that are eaten that have symbolic meanings and are basically word plays on the name of the food in Hebrew. And I guess sort of poignant to, to mention coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, one of the things like since childhood that always bothered me is I think one reason that so many of those have not seeked further is because when you read what that blessing is about, it's about destroying our enemy, cutting down our enemy. And is that what we want to be thinking about, you know, going into the new year? And I did realize that that first Rosh Hashanah right after 9-11, it was powerful to give voice to what we were all thinking and feeling, even though, um, you know, like it wasn't going to happen in that way. They weren't going to all be consumed, all be destroyed. And it just gave me a perspective on the milieu in which it arose. Hmm. But I've always wanted, so like before I sort of came to a little bit more of understanding, I'm like, okay, so it's great like that the pomegranate is that, you know, our mitzvot will be so numerous, but could we have some like food associations that speak more to intentionalities for the new year, right? So like, what are the mitzvot that we're going to be do that are going to be so meritorious? What are sort of like little self-reminders that we can create that evening that would hopefully follow us through the year? I love that. Um, that's wonderful. Like really, really creating that Rosh Hashanah Seder intentionally kind of like crafting it for yourself. Mm-hmm. I can imagine crafting one that's specifically for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, by the way, particularly for people who are touched by that event in an intimate way. Um, that's a beautiful idea. While you're all thinking, I'll mention another one. There's somebody else in our community who um, lost a parent and... This person, this member of our community, is a particularly observant person. And their parent, in turn, was also a very observant person. But this this community member had reservations um, going back years to travel through Europe with their spouse and with dear friends of theirs. And they didn't want to cancel the trip, which happened to fall during the Shloshim. They were really torn. Do I cancel this trip that they had planned for so long or do I go on the trip which is during the Shloshim and so they decided to create a program of study that they would complete during Shloshim and on the trip every day they stopped during the trip and they studied together with their friends they would stop wherever they were somewhere in whatever city they would sit down and they would study a Mishnah in their parents name and then at the end of the shloshim there was a gathering in this person's home a siyum and they studied they 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 taught on all of these mishnayot all these different mishnas that had been studied over the course of those 30 days and recalled what it was like to stop in each of those cities and to study in their parents name and 
I haven't forgotten that. I think it's a really beautiful model of how people can live in this world and also not forget their parents' memories while they're kind of going about life. It really, it really struck me and stuck with me. Do you want to share something, Sherry? Yeah, I'll share what I wrote to you today so that I had listened to the first two podcasts of this because I couldn't come. Um, but my father also just passed away a couple weeks ago. Um, and I suddenly found I had to make a decision very quickly or not. So I did. So it doesn't have to be quickly. It can evolve, but it felt quickly as to how and what I was going to do about saying Kaddish. And, and, you know, I know what the strict rules are versus that it's never worked for me quite that way. So, um, and I, as we all know, the words of Kaddish, you have to find a connection somehow between that and the person. Cause it just isn't obvious there. Um, and so when I was listening to the podcast, I had the idea that I would create a um, little fo- a, one picture, but a collage of a lot of pictures of me and my father with our, the kind of depicts our relationship, you know, me hugging him and different things like that. And um, that whether I would be learning or if I'm actually saying Kaddish, I would have that with me so I could remember to just be thankful and use the time to be thankful for the relationship that I had. Um, and that was more and that's going to be more important to me, I think. It'll still evolve going forward um, than maybe just saying the words of the Kaddish, um, but having that to make an intention. And I know, Bonnie, you have a book that I heard mentioned, and I actually bought the book as well. Um, so I have that also. But whether I'm reading from the book or in a minion or here, I can have that with me so that I can remember that relationship and connect it. And so I kind of did that earlier I don't know, whenever I listen to the class. I've got that going. I don't know. The innovation sounds much harder than, is, yeah, creating a whole new ritual sounds a lot harder than taking something that maybe I don't connect to and then making it mine. Like, I kind of like the idea that I did that with this and that maybe either that will evolve or I'll find something else to do that with. I, I love that you did it. I love that you're willing to share it with us. Thank you. It was touching to hear about well, it was exciting to hear the class and then to have that kind of spark I really did like that I'm, I'm really glad I'm glad you got that tool and and I'll tell you you know it seems like it would be um it seems like it would be crazy to just try to come like who am I to invent completely whole cloth a brand new ritual how could that be a powerful thing but it could be something as simple as I'm, you know, I'm cancer free, so I'd like to go to the mikveh. Or I just got my divorce papers. I'm going to the mikveh. Or I'm going to, um, uh, I am going to eat my leftover matzo balls and and whatever brisket I froze from, you know, all the leftovers, I'm going to pick a day on the calendar to have, uh, like second pace off when I need to like revisit that feeling. And I'm going to set a date on the calendar and have that, you know, other day that's not actually on pace off Shaney, but like this other day when I'm going to like need to feel, you know, Mina Metzar Karate. Yeah. Like I, I cried out from a narrow place and like go and make a ritual of like, of like freeing myself uh, when I reach for those things. I mean, I'm just, 
I love ritual. I think anything that we do to like claim something that is ours from our tradition and say, I'm going to make something powerful out of it is amazing. And I always go back to that like little salt shaker dog that we put on our table. Even the simplest thing can become um, something really powerful in your family. Um, So we only have one last time to join together next week and um, hopefully really find um, a way to fine tune some sharing together and and give you a bunch of tools to walk away um, from this experience with. If anybody else has other books to share, um, Karen was asking, what's that book? I think they're referring to the journal, the Cottage Journal, um, that, that with all the different quotes, and I'm sure Bonnie can share it. Um, with you or or Sherry Um, and if anybody has other books and and resources to share please feel free to do that it's so nice all of you who are joining and lovely all those of you who are um, who are listening in on on the podcast later because you joined in the trip from to the South uh, Exploration or something else, or you're just listening from like South Africa because we have random listeners there. It's good to ha- it's good to be heard by you, um, Bonnie. You can get the last word. Wait, hang on, you're muted. Second. I've never really been involved in in Daily Minion other than the the day of the Thursday before my girls bought misfits. Um, we went, but. So um, I've really, really enjoyed it and found it very comforting. And I was just gone for a, a week camping and, and couldn't do that. But in the campground every morning, I just found a place and stood by myself by the trees and, and had my own reflections and said some of the prayers that I knew by heart. So for that, that week, I had that, that quiet ritual by myself. It seemed to work very well for me. I'm so glad it did, and I'm so glad you had those moments. I'm glad you got to claim that for yourself. I, I, I could have used, Joey was there, my grandson Joey. He had his talisman to fill in with him and, and davened every morning, so I could have used the prayer book, but I, I chose to just walk away and be by myself in a, in a beautiful place. Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we have to walk away and... Be where we are. Um, Thank you all. This is a wonderful gathering. I appreciate every one of you. Um, And I will see you all very soon. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.